One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello, I'm Edward McBride, finance editor of The Economist, and this is Money Talks. This week, our economics editor, John O'Sullivan, talks about the crisis facing Italian banks. Even though the Italian banks are not exposed very much to Britain, there is a link between Brexit and the, the intensification of pressure on their shares in the past week. And you've heard of cooked books, but what about missing books? Stan Pignal, our correspondent in South Asia, discusses one Indian company's misplaced accounts. The airline's uh, books have uh, entirely vanished. It is a bit of a problem for its creditors, uh, who are trying to get money back from the airline. And finally, is cash worth the trouble? Sasha Nauter, our European finance correspondent, wonders why we bother. Cash is quite a lot of hassle. It's quite expensive to handle. If you're a retailer, you need to store it, then have it securely moved to a bank. It needs to be washed. It needs to be guarded. It needs to be checked for all sorts of things. First, though, we head to Rome, where Prime Minister Matteo Renzi is squaring off with the European Union over his plans to bail out Italy's banks. Last week, as Brexit engulfed the markets and sent Italian bank shares into a tailspin, Mr Renzi reiterated his view that the Eurozone's budget rules were crimping growth. Mr Renzi would like Europe to put more emphasis on promoting growth and investment and less on balancing the books. He's worried that Italy's banks are saddled with too many bad debts and so are too weak to help revive the economy by extending new credit. Mr. Renzi has even tried to use Brexit, which hit Italian bank shares hard, as an excuse to suspend European rules that prohibit the Italian government from bailing out banks without imposing losses on the bank's bondholders. John O'Sullivan, our economics editor, is here with me now to discuss Mr. Renzi's plans. So, John, let's start with the European rules that Mr. Renzi wants to get around. Uh, Since the financial crisis, the regulator's intention has been to bail in banks' creditors rather than for governments to bail out banks. Isn't that right? That's right. Across most of Europe, where there were bank bailouts in the wake of the financial crisis, the call was really made on governments to, to pump the extra capital in. And although in many cases stockholders took, took hits, bondholders were actually got, got off scot-free and got, got paid off all their money. So the idea of the bank bail-in rules is that not only that shareholders should be hit, but before there is a call on the taxpayers, the bank bondholders should also pay a part in uh, recapitalising the banks by essentially taking losses on their, on their bonds. The problem with this for Italy is twofold. One is that unlike just about every other country in Europe, Uh, with the exception of France, Italy did not recapitalise its banks in the wake of the financial crisis, so it's been rather laggardly in trying to fix its banking problem. And the second uh, particularly Italian-specific problem is that around about half of the senior bondholders in Italy, bank bondholders in Italy, are retail investors who essentially treat these bank bonds as if they were time deposits. So a bank bail-in of bondholders is going to hit voters, savers, much harder than it would in other places. These rules have been in place for for, uh, over a year now. Why is the crisis suddenly coming to a head now? 
Um, I think there's three reasons for that. One is, is Brexit. Even though the Italian banks are not exposed very much to Britain, there is a link between Brexit and the, in, the intensification of pressure on their shares in the past week. So Brexit is bad news for the British economy. It's also somewhat bad news for the Eurozone economy. And Italy is the big weak link in the Eurozone economy. And the Italian banks are the weak link in Italy. So that's one reason why it's coming to a head now. The second thing is we have the publication of the Eurozone's bank stress tests coming up in July the 29th. So that sets a sort of deadline for some sort of action to take place. And further out on the horizon, there's a referendum in Italy in October on constitutional change, which if it doesn't go Mr. Renzi's way, he has said he will resign as a, as a consequence. So all those three things are putting a particular pressure and particular focus on Italy right now. So we have the ingredients for a sort of political crisis in Italy off the back of all of this. And, and we also have the ingredients for a bit of a crisis in terms of banking regulation in Europe, right? It seems very difficult. It seems unlikely that we come out of this particular impasse with the, the rules intact. Either Mr Renzi, which I think is very unlikely, imposes the bail-in rules and imposes losses on uh, many retail bank bondholders and the political storm will be enormous and everyone else will say we just simply cannot do this again. Or the rules somewhere have to be tweaked to allow Italy some wiggle room so that it can recapitalise it, its banks using state money without imposing losses on retail bondholders. So either way, I think that the new rules are, are going to be tested and found to be somewhat wanting and going to have to are going to come out of this somewhat uh, impaired. So no matter what, it's, it sounds like there's, there's going to be some damage to the uh, credibility of these rules. But there is a case for making an exception for Italy, isn't there? Well, I think there is. As I said earlier, Italy is one of the few places where in Europe where the government didn't recapitalise its banking system in the immediate aftermath of the financial crisis. So it's had this, it's a legacy issue, essentially from two decades of economic stagnation. These These bad loans have piled up. They weren't dealt with and they weren't dealt with at a time where the rules are more favourable, as they were for, say, Spain or Ireland. Um, so there's a case that says Italy just didn't get going on this and should be able to recapitalise the banks on the same terms as others. And I think the second thing is that, not quite uniquely, because Portugal is, some, is somewhat similar, this issue of retail depositors being holding a large chunk of bank bondholders is particularly a problem in Italy, and you can see why the rules need to be tweaked in order to protect what are essentially depositors. And that presumably is a good principle more broadly. If you are going to bail in bondholders, you probably want to make sure, not just in Italy, but across Europe, that the people owning those bonds are not retail investors who might not realise the, the risk they're running. Yes, and I think that one way to do that is to somehow signal that these bonds are at risk. So call them bail-in bonds, not certificates of deposit. That's one way around it. I think it's actually quite difficult even to impose losses on, on wholesale bondholders, but I think you can make the case that they have to take the hit and that they are in a better position to monitor banks and to exert some pressure on them to, to actually lend sensibly and, and have good corporate governance and so on. I think a retail depositor is just simply not in that situation or a retail bondholder is not in the situation where they can really monitor banks. And so I think they have to be treated as if they are depositors. And we do, of course, have deposit insurance in, in most countries across Europe. So it sounds like with, with a few modifications, bail-in is, is a principle worth preserving. But how do we actually get around this problem? How, how will it all end in Italy? I think it's unlikely that it gets to the point where Italy just unilaterally tries to recapitalise its banks because that will leave a, some uncertainty over whether the recapitalisation is actually something that will hold over the long term, particularly if it's challenged by uh, the European Commission in courts. So I think what's most likely here is some kind of euro fudge which probably means a partial recapitalisation of banks 
with some conditions, perhaps forcing banks to merge and, and close some branches. So that gives some cover to the rules and the rules get somewhat somewhat tweaked. The good thing about this is it just makes the problem go away for a few months and everyone forgets about it. The problem is it's unlikely to deal with the scale of the bad debts in, Italians, in Italy's banking system and the, the problem returns again in about a year's time. But I think that's more or less the kind of classic playbook for Europe, which is do something in the short term that fixes it and makes it go away and then only to find that it comes back and bites you again in a few months' time. All right, well, we'll look forward to having you back the next time Europe is forced to confront Italy's debts. In the meantime, thank you very much, John. Thank you. And to our listeners, don't forget, if you have any thoughts on whether Italy should bail out or bail in, you can tweet us at Economist Radio or email us at radio at economist.com. Now, fasten your seatbelts. We're headed to India. This Airbus aircraft is equipped with several unique features, which I hope you will enjoy. That's the in-flight video from happier days when Kingfisher Airlines was one of India's biggest carriers. Now defunct, the company faces allegations of fraud, but authorities have hit a road bump in their investigation. Stan Pinyal, our South Asian business correspondent based in Mumbai, is on the line with me now. Stan, the books for Kingfisher Airlines seem to have literally flown away. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. The airline's books have entirely vanished. It is a bit of a problem for its creditors who are trying to get money back from the airline, quite a bit of money, actually. They owe about $1.3 billion to a bunch of banks and others. And it appears that what happened is that the financial records were stored on leased computers, and obviously when the vendors weren't paid, they just took the computers back, and nobody thought to back up the accounts, apparently. And it's not just the records that are missing. Uh, the, the company's boss is also no longer around in India. Yeah, that's right. So, so this is one of India's uh, longest-running business sagas. Uh, Vijay Malia, who inherited a booze empire and who was known as the king of good times uh, during the good times, uh, used the, the proceeds of that booze empire to start Kingfisher Airlines. That never went particularly well, but it was quite a respected airline. It collapsed in 2012. It averred that some of the loans uh, may uh, perhaps uh, have been uh, obtained in, in somewhat uh, dubious manner from, from state-owned banks. Mr. Malia, somewhat oddly, was a member of India's upper house. And all the banks have now been scrambling to get, get this money back. I think sensing the heat, uh, Mr. Malia disappeared uh, back in March. And a couple of months ago, he, it averred that he was in London, where it appears he still is. So what happens now? The, the, the company's books are missing. The company's CEO has left the country, says he doesn't want to return to deal with these uh, irregularities because he thinks it's a witch hunt. Uh, how will the, the bankruptcy be resolved? This is a source of, of endless amusement in India. Uh, one of the uh, funnier uh, twists and turns recently is that uh, one of the banks, Banks of Baroda, which I think is India's second biggest bank, uh, was trying to track down anybody else who might have personally guaranteed the loans, and they froze a bunch of bank accounts. And it, it, it then averred that one of the guy's bank accounts they'd frozen was a farmer, uh, the other one was a vegetable vendor, another one was a security guard, and these people had nothing to do uh, with Kingfisher. They they just happened, they, their names happened to sound a little bit like those of directors of Kingfisher. In fact, the directors of Kingfisher are also denying uh, that they've guaranteed any loans. Um, so the, the banks are kind of scurrying around. There are endless lawsuits. Uh, it's gone all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the problem is, that the banks basically cannot be seen to be taking a haircut on uh, the loans they made to Malia. Malia is a super high public profile 
back in December, he threw this huge 60th birthday party in Goa. The public is has been kind of whipped up in a frenzy, and and, and nobody wants to accept Vijay Malia paying anything less than what the banks are owed. And Vijay Malia is making the point that actually the, the banks and him need to come to some kind of agreement where they'll, they will end up losing a little bit of money. He'll end up losing a bit of money and everybody fights on for another day. And so Stan, e- even if the money in dispute is very unlikely to be recovered in full, does this signal part of a, of a sort of broader intolerance of tycoons who, who uh, welch on their debts in India? Yeah, absolutely. So this has been one of the big theme of the the Modi premiership. Him and uh, Raghuram Rajan, the the outgoing central bank governor, have basically really uh, cracked down on on banks, particularly state-owned banks, who make up the 70% of of lending in India, and said, you know, you you can no longer make loans based on uh, just politicians leaning on bankers, uh, and then those loans are quietly written off. That Apparently that era is over. Uh, The bankers have been told to tidy up their balance sheet, which are full of bad loans. So the, the Malia case is kind of symptomatic of a, a much broader trend. Uh, there are many, many other conversations uh, that are like that, but obviously Vijay Malia, because he's so famous, because he was the king of good times, has sort of attracted the, a disproportionate amount of, of media attention. All right, Stan Pinal, thank you very much. Thank you. And finally... I need That's Allo Black with I Need a Dollar. Now, I'm joined by Sasha Nauta, our European finance correspondent, who's going to explain to us why a dollar, a dong, a dirham, or any form of cash for that matter, may actually be the last thing we need. Sasha, you travel around Europe for your work. That's how you came across this story of, of cash v. plastic, right? That's right. I was in Amsterdam and noticed that a lot of cafes and shops now have signs up saying, cards only, no cash. And that kind of makes sense, right? Because cash is quite a lot of hassle. It's quite expensive to handle. If you're a retailer, you need to store it, then have it securely moved to a bank. It needs to be washed. It needs to be guarded. It needs to be checked for all sorts of things. And then it needs to be stored. If you compare that to a a plastic payment or a virtual payment, none of those costs come in. And then cash, of course, can be used for illicit finance, money laundering, fraud, etc. So in a way, I wasn't surprised by what I saw in Amsterdam and to that extent in a lot of Northern Europe. What I was surprised by was how hard it still is to pay with plastic in large parts of Germany, where in fact some places still have signed up saying cash only. All right. So explain what you've discovered in, in terms of, of why this is. Obviously, as you say, these countries, especially neighbours like the Netherlands and Germany, you know, have, have a lot in common economically. How come they've ended up with such different results in terms of their payment systems? So I think there's Three things that that help explain it. Uh, Firstly, and probably most importantly, it's the role of banks. Secondly, it's the attitude of retailers. And thirdly, it's cultural. And the third is probably the most interesting. But I'll I'll start with the first banks. In the northern countries, so particularly the Scandinavian countries, but also the Netherlands, Belgium, Luxembourg, the banks have done a lot to help wean people off cash. On the one hand, by making cash more expensive for customers and for retailers to to, to deal with, on the other hand, by making card payments easier uh, and cheaper. And then secondly, there's the retailers, right? If you're a retailer and card payments are expensive for you, you're much more likely to continue to only accept cash. And in countries like Italy, uh, retailers have for a very long time sort of rejected any acceptance of cards because the banks were charging them a lot, but also because there's lots of SMEs. Same goes for Germany. 
Whereas if you're a large retailer, you can afford to make the investments up front. But secondly, you tend to be able to make a good deal with your with your bank. And that's something smaller retailers across Europe complain about, that they tend to get a less good deal. So that leaves culture. Why are Germans so enamoured with cash? They love cash. The average German has got, apparently, according to the Bundesbank, more than 100 euros in their pocket at all times, which is extraordinary if you can compare that to a lot of other Northern Europeans, or in fact, Southern Europeans, I would guess. And a lot of it comes back to sort of this distrust of being tracked. They see anything other than a cash payment as something that's not anonymous, whether it's a card payment or a PayPal payment or anything sort of where somebody might be able to find out who they are. They're very distrusting of that. On the other hand, you have the Scandinavians who are very happy to use their mobile phones for everything. uh, And payments is just another form of that. And whether it's plastic or phones or computers, they don't really mind. They don't seem to have that hang-up that the Germans have at all. So for Germans, at any rate, privacy and plastic don't mix. Sascha Nauter, thank you very much. Thank you. That's all for this episode of Money Talks. To find out more about all these stories, pick up the forthcoming issue of The Economist or visit our website at economist.com. I'm Edward McBride. Thanks for joining us. Goodbye. Traffic jams, tailgating... Pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.